We'll turn our attention to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. <clears throat> you follow along with me. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? Ask a blessing over God's word. Father, Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the privilege that we have to meet together this morning, hear from your word, and to worship together. And over the next few moments, Father, I ask that you would show up here. I believe that you're already here because you're always present. Your word just told us that you are Emmanuel, God with us. So your presence is here, and God, I ask that your presence would be tangible. And I ask that your presence would be special in the preaching of your word over the next few moments. I pray, God, that your spirit would come, reveal the majesty of the, the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ to us. I don't know where every person is at this morning that walked in this room, but you, Father, do know. And your word says that you are a very good Father. So I just ask, God, that you would come and speak through the preaching of your word to our hearts, that you would bind up the brokenhearted, that you would strengthen the weak that you would give joy to the depressed, that you would be a friend to sinners, that your presence would be known to those who feel alone. Help us to uh, encounter you. Pray, Father, that you would open hearts and open eyes and open ears this morning. Father, I trust that that's the work that you can do because you left the tomb empty. Pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen, amen. So hey, as we, uh, uh, as we dive into Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, what we see um, is we see the story of how Jesus came into the world, right? Um, and honestly, it's a wild story. Uh, if, you, if you stop for a minute and examine this story, I think you'll find that it's a pretty wild story. It's not a, it's not a lame Hallmark movie, although not all Hallmark movies are lame, um, but it's not one of those lame Hallmark movies. It's like the same stinking story over and over and over again, right? This is a good story. This is a wild story that will get your attention if you stop and give it the chance. I mean, it's a story of a young virgin. Just take that piece to start with, a young virgin becoming pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's wild. Agreed? Well, this young virgin, Mary... She had a fiancé named Joseph who was a really, really good man. Now, not just a really good man, but a, a really, really, really good man. He was a just man, a righteous man. He was a very good man. He was a just man. 
And when he found out that Mary was pregnant, even though they were not yet married and they had not yet been together sexually, he planned to break it off with her, which makes sense to me. Probably makes sense to most of us as you read the story, right? I think this would be the way we would go as well. But the good thing about Joseph and the just thing about Joseph is that he did not want to embarrass Mary publicly. Now, honestly, I think if you examine the story and you think about it, you put yourself in Joseph's shoes, think about the culture of that time, he probably had every emotional, every religious right to publicly embarrass Mary, but he was a good man. He was a just man. He didn't want to do that. And so he planned to break up with her privately, right? That was his plan. But as he was making those plans, set Mary aside. The Lord comes to him in a dream. And he commands Joseph not to break up with her, but to instead go ahead and marry her. Why? Commanded Joseph to go ahead and marry her because her pregnancy wasn't a sign of her unfaithfulness. Her pregnancy was actually a sign of God's faithfulness. That was shocking as that dream might be. The Lord actually takes it a step further. So I love it when God shows up in dreams and shows up in miraculous ways in the scriptures because he does it in such mind-boggling, mind-blowing ways. And he, he, just, he, he pushes past the limits of our finite understanding. As shocking as this dream would have been even at this point, the Lord actually takes things a step further and reveals to Joseph that they would actually have a son. Now just stop and think about that in the context of the day and age that we live in now, right? I mean, there's no ultrasounds then, for one. Hey. God reveals the gender of the baby before the baby is born. That's an important thing to catch, I think, for us. Also explains to Joseph that they should plan to name him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Now, I don't know about you, um, but sounds like a real juicy story, doesn't it? A wild story. Matthew goes on to explain that all of this, if you think it hasn't gotten wild enough already, it gets more wild. Because Matthew explains that all of this happened to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah had already prophesied and predicted many years earlier. So not only do you have what appears to be the beginning of a jacked up marriage, but you, you also have the claim of a miraculous virgin conception. And then you also have the Lord appearing to Joseph in a dream that was neither drink nor drug induced. And you also have an old prophecy getting fulfilled. Wild story, right? So put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a minute in the midst of this story. Like how do you wake up the next day after an emotional roller coaster like that? You had plans to get married the right way. You do everything possible to walk in purity with your soon-to-be spouse. Your soon-to-be spouse turns up pregnant. You make plans to drop your soon-to-be spouse like a hot rock, right? You go to sleep, pondering your decision, your plan to break that relationship off. And you have this dream where God tells you not to break up with your soon-to-be spouse and that your obedience to him will help to bring about the fulfillment of a nearly forgotten prophecy from the old days about the salvation of mankind. What do you do after an encounter with God like that? 
What do you do after an encounter with God in the midst of all the swirling circumstances? All the carefully thought out plans. What do you do? See, for Joseph, this encounter with God causes him to wake up the very next morning and actually reorient his plans in obedience to the Lord's commands. When was the last time your plans were absolutely reoriented by God's commands? When was the last time your plans were completely reoriented by God's faithful plan for you? Let me ask you this about the plans that you have for your life. How would you, how would you characterize what motivates your plans? Motivated by fear, maybe? Or motivated by obedience to the Lord? Well, Joseph's obedience was over the top. He didn't just go through with the marriage as God had commanded. He went through with the marriage and he committed to abstaining from sexual intimacy with Mary until Jesus was born. That's pretty wild. I mean, you, you think about our reasons for getting married today, and that's, that's not what we look forward to on the honeymoon night, right? <laughs> See, Joseph's purpose in marrying his wife was not sexual pleasure, it was obedience to God. That was his purpose. Oh, that more men and women would get that today. And there would be no question whatsoever in Joseph's or Mary's mind, or I think anybody else's mind during that time, in regards to the miraculous conception of Jesus. There would be no question. And the final act of faithful obedience on Joseph's part, if you are looking at the text with me, and the final act of faithful obedience on his part was that he actually named their son Jesus. He did that because God had commanded him to, right? See, in this story, what's happening is we see humanity and divinity coming together in the flesh. Now, now just that statement, you could nuance that out a whole bunch, and that's what I'm going to try to do, I think, for the next few moments. You see humanity and divinity coming together in the flesh, and this is what happens. When, when humanity and divinity meet, miraculous, superhuman things happen. <coughs> Number one... I want you to think about the humanity of Joseph and Mary. Think about that for a minute. Think about the humanity of Joseph and Mary. It's human to want to get married, agreed? Uh, human to plan a breakup when things head south, agreed? Most human relationships um, have a tendency to fall apart when there's even the smallest hint of possible unfaithfulness. So it's absolutely superhuman and, and, and miraculous to see what happened with Joseph and Mary, to see this story. Because Joseph and Mary experienced the miraculous intersection of God stepping into humanity in the form of a miraculously conceived baby in Mary's womb. So when humanity meets divinity, miraculous superhuman things happen. Well, number two, think about the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. Think about that. Uh, Jesus was born of a virgin, therefore he's human. Agree? Yeah. I'm just, I, I, was, I heard like feedback starting, so I was just going to stop and just wait. 
kept talking, it would just get worse. But thank you for your answer. <laughs> yes, he's human. At the same time, Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit, which makes him divine. Now, he's not 50% human and 50% divine, much like some of the really awesome sci-fi movies that we all love to watch about superheroes. Um, he's 100% human and 100% divine. Well, the prophet Isaiah, among many other prophets, had predicted this very thing, this very event, many years earlier. And the prophecy stated, and you heard it earlier, right? It was Isaiah 7.14. Andrew read the text, which I think is really awesome because we didn't confer on this. Um, the prophecy stated that God would come, listen, to be among his people in a very special way as God in the flesh that would save his people from their sins. Now, catch this for a minute. I want you to just think about this. It's not as though God ceased to be present with humanity. It's not as though he ever stopped being present with humanity. God is omnipresent, which means that he is constantly present with us everywhere for all of time. Now, so caveat and side note, that I'm not going to spend a bunch of time, but I just want to deposit this thought in your head. I want you to think about the omnipresence of God in terms of two places that you often hear the church and the Bible talk about. You talk about heaven and you talk about hell. What does the presence of God look like in those two places? That's an interesting thing to think about if God is omnipresent everywhere at all times. God is omnipresent. He is constantly present with us everywhere. But in this story that we see, we see God becoming present with his people in a very special way in the form of a baby named Jesus. So when humanity meets divinity, miraculous superhuman things happen. Agreed? Fair statement? Okay. Well, why does this matter? That's a question. Why does this matter? Why is this important for us today? Because every year around this time, you can walk into just about any public place, you can walk into just about any home, and you can find some kind of celebration that points to Jesus' birth as the reason for this season. Christmas music comes on the radio right around Halloween time. That point forward, the entire world appears to be caught up with the Christmas story, right? As Americans, it's easy for us to become numb to the importance of this story. Why? It's easy for us to become numb to the importance of this story because of the annual celebration that we in our country get caught up in. And I'll honest, like a little bone to pick uh, for me and move on real fast. Like the annual celebration that happens in our country oftentimes reflects more of our preoccupation with extravagant spending and partying rather than the Savior of the world. Okay? Like, I think, I think we, should, uh, we should be convicted on that. So why does this story matter? <laughs> what significance does this story hold for a group of people like us who live in a country that at bare minimum at least gives a head nod to this story in this season every year? Well, number one, I think this is a story of reoriented human plans. It's a story of reoriented human plans. We've already talked about how Joseph and Mary had a plan for their marriage that included absolute purity, right? 
Uh, we've already talked about how those plans appeared to be shattered when Mary turns up pregnant. Surprise! And we've also talked about how Joseph planned to divorce Mary privately until God appeared to him and turned those plans upside down. To, honestly, though, to get at the heart of this story, to get at the heart of this story, you have to go way back to the book of Isaiah. Now, you might remember the prophecy that Matthew referred to, the one that Andrew read during our service. He had no clue that we planned, that I planned to preach mostly out of Isaiah this morning, actually. What you might not know is the context of that prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. I love context, big context guy. When you lift a passage out and you read it, there is an entire set of circumstances. There's an entire group of people that that was being written to, right? That there's reasons why that passage was there. And oftentimes we lift it out, especially during this season, and we kind of try to make it mean something that it doesn't mean. It's important for us to have the context of what was happening in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And the significance of that context in regards to reoriented human plans. Now, simply stated, um, before we look at Isaiah a little bit, before we think about that, when God reorients a man's plans, then that man or woman's life becomes like an oak tree that is firmly rooted and bearing much fruit. Okay? That's what happens when we allow God's plans to reorient our plans. We become like oak trees that are firmly rooted, bearing much good, honoring, God-honoring fruit. But when you and I resist God's reorientation of our plans, then what happens? Our lives begin to look a lot more like a field that gets eaten by a swarm of locusts. That's the context in Isaiah. That's the context in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. When Isaiah gave his prophecy in 7, 14 about the virgin conceiving a child who would be Emmanuel, God with us, there was a king named Ahaz. King Ahaz. And King Ahaz had found himself in a real pickle, right? And he needed to make some plans. Actually, the reality is, is that um, he did find himself in a pickle. And he needed to make some plans. He already had some plans by the time we pick it up in Isaiah 7. You see, Ahaz was the king of Israel at the time. And he was in the bloodline of David. Now, this is really important for us to catch. Because Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, is in the bloodline of David. And the other prophecies in regards to Jesus being the Messiah, the Savior of the world, um, tell us that Jesus has to be in the bloodline of David as well. And so Joseph fulfills that prophecy as an adoptive father to Jesus. But you go all the way back to King Ahaz, he's also in the bloodline of Jesus. In the bloodline of David. And what had happened, what was happening in the story was that all of Israel's enemies were mounting a big war against them. And King Ahaz is afraid because they're about to get annihilated. Just think about it. You're the leader of a very large nation. You're about to get annihilated. How much fear would you be experiencing then? I remember that when the angel came to Joseph, one of the things that the angel said was, do not fear, right? Bringing into context the fear of what was taking place for King Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7. Because when Isaiah goes to King Ahaz, it's the same thing. Hey, don't be afraid. 
Don't be afraid. Stay the course. Trust God. Let your faith stand firm. Believe in Him. Don't be controlled by your fear. Stand firm and know that God will be with you. Emmanuel. Isaiah's simple instructions to King Ahaz. Stand firm. Go alone. Trust that God will keep you and save you. Right? What do you think King Ahaz's response was? King Ahaz's response was, no, man, I already got a plan, number one. And, and number two, like, just in my own little religious language, because King Ahaz understands what it means to have fake religious language like a lot of us churchgoers today if you've been saved longer than 15 minutes you get all sorts of good christian language that helps us to look really good right so king ahaz has got some really good language like oh no man i don't want to i don't want to test the lord and what isaiah does he'd been like hey you know what you could test the lord on this you could ask for anything you want as deep as the earth is and as high as the heavens are Ahaz, you can ask, and the Lord will give you a sign to prove to you that he will be with you. And Ahaz's like, no, man, who am I to test the Lord? Really, underneath all of that religious rhetoric, he already had a plan. You want to know what his plan was? His plan was to actually hire other enemies of the nation of Israel and enlist their help and pay them to help defend him against the other enemies that were coming against them. Long story short, King Ahaz had a plan in his mind, and it did not actually include trusting God. It included trusting his own strength to get what he wanted, which was to be released from his fear. Now, as a result, It's not necessarily that God's presence wasn't with King Ahaz in this story. You can go back and you can read the story. It's pretty devastating what happens. But it's not that God's presence wasn't with King Ahaz. As I said earlier, God is omnipresent. It's just simply that because of Ahaz's rebellion and because of Ahaz's mistrust, And because of Ahaz's disobedience, God's presence was no longer a presence that brought redemption. It wasn't a presence that brought blessing. What do you think God's presence was like now since he was being rebellious and disobedient? His presence was a presence that brought destruction and devastation and judgment. So when we don't allow our plans to be reoriented by God's commands... You and I might experience momentary happiness or momentary pleasure because you got that thing that you've always wanted. Might seem like blessing in the moment, but in the long run, we will experience the devastation of God's righteous judgment upon our sin. I mean, the scriptures teach us that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. The scriptures teach us that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. That passage is in the same context that talks about how many children are like arrows in the hands of a skilled warrior. And go back to this story of Joseph. What was happening was God himself was coming and giving him the blessing of a child, a son named Jesus, who would be Emmanuel among us. What did he need to do? Trust that God was with him and not follow his own plans, 
but follow the Lord's plans, right? He needed his plans to be reoriented, and that's what you and I need too. I need my plans to be reoriented by the Lord. If I'm left to myself, I will choose plans for my life that are motivated by my fear, by my sin, by my insecurities, and by my selfishness. That's what I will do if I'm left to myself. It's what you'll do if you're left to yourself too. It's really the story of Ahaz. Almost the story of Joseph and Mary. <clears throat> it's the story of the nation of Israel. It's the story of humanity's struggle with sin ever since the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve's plan was to get some juicy fruit into their bellies, right? And where did that plan lead to? Destruction. We've all tasted the consequences of it ever since. Humanity, ever since the garden, has been on a collision course of human plans. And this is why I say that when humanity meets divinity, miraculous superhuman things happen. Superhuman things like redemption. If you just follow the grand story of the scriptures of creation, fall, redemption, glorification. It's the grand arc of the gospel. My hope is that you would hear those different grand arcs all throughout this message too. Number two, this is really the story of God's faithfulness. This is really the story of God's faithful plan. There's nothing that happened in this story that catches God by surprise. He knew that Adam and Eve would rebel. He knew that King Ahaz wouldn't listen to him. He knew that Israel would continue running headlong after every other love that we could possibly imagine. He knew that humanity as a whole would run after every other God possible. He knew every detail of your life before you ever took a breath. He knows the very number of the hairs upon your head. He knows your thoughts. He knows your desires. He knows your dreams. He knows your fears and he knows your plans he knows right where you're at today and he knows where you were at last night and he knows where you were at when you walked in here this morning he knows every intimate detail of your heart he knows how you've tried to medicate your pain and he knows how you plan to pursue that particular sin he knows because he knows everything because he's everywhere all the time at all times god is present with us among us and yet, as we see in the story of the virgin conception and birth of Jesus, God, though he knows every intimate detail of your life, and he knows every intimate detail of your plans, he had a plan for your redemption. And his plan for your redemption doesn't look like him just sending a check in the mail to pay for the price of your sin. His plan of redemption looks like God himself becoming present in a unique way among us in the form of Jesus Christ who is the Savior of the world. Emmanuel, God with us in a redemptive way, a uniquely redemptive way. See, when humanity meets divinity, miraculous superhuman things happen like redemption. This really is the story of God's faithful plan. I'm sure there's all these other things happening in the story, very human things happening. But in the midst of all this, the real story that's meant to catch us by surprise is God's faithful plan. At the right time, God came in the form of a baby named Jesus to become the Savior of the world. At the right time, 
Jesus came to die upon the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. To be buried in a tomb. To leave that tomb empty three days later. To ascend back to heaven. To send us his very own spirit to live within and through us until he returns to take us home to be with him. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a divine plan that could reorient every human plan that I could ever make. From the way I approach my job to the way I plan to spend time with my wife, the way I plan for my financial future, the way I plan out my vacation, this sounds like a divine plan that not only could, but should reorient every plan of my life. See, when humanity meets divinity, superhuman things happen, and my plans get reoriented by God's faithful plan. I don't know what you walked in here with today. I'm not sure what plans you had when you walked in the door. I'm not sure where your heart was when you woke up this morning. I'm not sure how the Christmas season even affects you. My prayer, though, is that in the midst of all the craziness of this season, My prayer is that you would hear this message. And as you hear this message, you would encounter the very presence of a very present God who is alive, left the tomb empty, came in the form of a baby to be our Savior and our Emmanuel. My prayer is that in the midst of the presence of Emmanuel, that as he meets you there, that he would meet you in your human place of need. And in the midst of that, something miraculous and superhuman would happen inside of you as a result. Your failures don't catch God by surprise. Your sin doesn't scare him away. It's actually what drew him to this place to die upon a cross. Your rebellion doesn't change his love for you. Your religious faking doesn't intimidate him. Your depression and your fear doesn't change who he is. Your human plans don't change his plans for you. When humanity meets divinity, miraculous superhuman things happen. And the question, the one final question I want to leave you with, is how is God speaking to you right now about his desire to reorient your plans? How is God speaking to you? right now, how he wants to reorient your plans. And what will your response be? Because in every crowd, there's two crowds of people, at least in a church. I'm just going to do an arbitrary breaking up of two crowds. You know, one crowd who believe they're Christian, and they at least believe they've been Christians for longer than 15 minutes. Okay. And then there's another crowd you're not Christian, but you grew up in a country that professes Christianity, so by and large, especially in this area, you think because you go to church two or three times a year that you might be Christian, you might identify with that. Somewhere in that same crowd are going to be maybe a third group of people. I lied, said there was only two. I'm going to say there's three now. So then there's the third group of people who are just really, really interested, right? Looking for a different social club. Jesus didn't come to die on a cross to build a social club. That way you know that. Jesus came down to cross to pay the penalty for our sin. The reason that Jesus was born in this season was to die. We're all born to die, so to speak, but he was born to die in a very unique way, pay the penalty for our sin. And when speaking to a crowd who believes they are Christian, he's going to have something to say. And when speaking to a crowd who's not sure if they want to be Christian, he's going to have something to say too. And the great thing is that both crowds get to meet at the same place, the cross, 
where Jesus' blood was poured out for all of us and where his body was broken for every one of us. He came to be God, Emmanuel, God in the flesh. And in the flesh, his flesh was ripped and his blood was poured out for you and for me, rebellious enemies that we really are. That plan for Jesus to come and to do that work was a plan that was put together long before the foundations of the earth were ever laid. And if you're here today and you call yourself Christian, I just want to ask, like, what is the result of that plan of redemption in your life? How, how does that story of God's plan of redemption reorient the way that you live your life in relationship, in the way that you handle your money, in the way that you go to work each day? in the way that you post things on Facebook, in the way that you talk to your spouse or soon-to-be spouse. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Start making some lists and asking God, how do you want to see my plans for my life changed in this moment? That's for you if you're Christian. Like, how does God want you to become more like him? If you're here and you're not Christian, the question is, what's stopping you? What's stopping you? And there's a lot of things that could stop us. Some of us just that we're so entrenched in what we want to do that we really don't want to do that. We're stubborn. I'm a stubborn person. Like a big truck knocking me off my bike. I'll stop and listen. I don't know what it might be that would be stopping you if you're here and you're not a believer. And I don't want to shame you or guilt you um, into like following Jesus today. I just want to ask that you would like seriously consider that this story could be true. And if it is true, it's going to matter for your life. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would do what I'm completely unable to do, and that is to open your heart and help you to follow him and trust in him. Come to him and say, man, I am broken. I am sinful. I'm a lot like King Ahaz. My hope is that you wouldn't continue to walk like King Ahaz. be more like Joseph. You trust the Savior of the world has come. And that somewhere in the midst of this message today, in our time together today, that you would have something miraculous and superhuman happen inside of you called salvation. I believe that God's presence is right here with us. And that by the power of the Spirit, He is speaking to every one of us in this room. Which is why I come back to that last question again. What do you think God wants to reorient inside of you at this Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would continue the work that you begin uh, in this message today. In our hearts as we wrap up, as we celebrate uh, communion together, and uh, as as we just process and worship through song together on what we just heard and studied and read from your word. And I pray, Father, that you, your spirit would Continue to draw our attention to um, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus at the cross and that that would um, come to bear on our lives. In Jesus' name I pray.